Well, welcome this morning to Grace Bible Church. I am thankful that you've joined us this morning. As I said earlier, we're praying for those directly affected by Hurricane Ian, particularly those areas down south where the storm hit with all its fury. We need to remain in prayer, diligently praying for those folks. Many times we don't fully understand what God is doing. We don't understand. When we look at even our own lives and and the things that are going on in our lives, we don't fully grasp it. Uh, Sometimes we don't fully even understand what God is doing in the church. Uh, We look at things from our own perspective and we don't understand everything that He's doing. But what we do need to know is that He is on His throne. And He even uses a massive storm like this for His glory, like Hurricane Ian. This is true if we don't fully, even if we don't fully understand it. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. End quote. Let me say that again. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Let me just say this. If you don't fully understand, or at least try to understand, we don't, I don't know if any of us fully understand God's sovereignty, but if we don't try to understand it, if we, if we think that these things that happen, whether it be sickness or disease or storms or it does any sort of disaster, if we think that those things happen outside of God's control, then we have no way of, I mean, there's, there's, we have no reason not to fear, right? I mean, we... We should fear if God is not in control. If, if somehow these things happen outside of God's control, then we should fear. But that's not what the Bible says. It's not what God's Word says, is it? That God is in full control. So when we go through a trial, as Charles Spurgeon says, the sovereignty of God becomes the pillow upon which we can lay our head. We can sleep well at night knowing that He is in full control and nothing happens outside of His Guidance and, and direction. You know, speaking of God's power, you may have seen pictures of Tampa during the storm. If you did, you know the water was actually pulled out of the bay by the storm. Can you imagine the amount of power it would take to move those millions of gallons of water? Just think of the size of an engine to move that amount of water all at once, just to, just to pull it out. Just take a moment to contemplate the sheer power of a storm that size. I did a quick search of how much energy is released during a hurricane. One estimate by the National Hurricane Center states that a 400-mile-wide hurricane produces 6 times 10 to the 14th power watts. That is a, that's enough to... That's 200 times the worldwide electrical generating capacity, just to put that in perspective. And one storm. That's an incredible amount of energy production. Now, as we return to our study of Matthew, I, I, I think I used this a few weeks ago, and, but I think it makes sense to, to bring it back up. I want to draw you to, to remind you of Matthew's account of a storm that he recorded in Matthew 8. That, that great storm overtook Jesus and his disciples as they, as they crossed the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus was himself asleep in the boat, and the, the storm was so great that the disciples were absolutely certain that they were going to perish. So they woke Jesus up, and they were fearing for their lives. And the text says that he awoke, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. 
perfect calm. I mean, it happened in an instant. It didn't just kind of slow down and like a storm normally does and peter out. It became perfectly calm in a moment. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Friends, our Lord controls the storms. He controls the wind and the waves. In the prayer of the psalmist, he says, O Lord, You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, You still them. You see, our Lord has infinitely greater power than any storm that ever existed. And as we contemplate the power of a great storm, as we think through that, we must never lose sight of the power of the One who can calm the wind and the waves. The one whose power is infinitely beyond all that we can imagine. I think of, I joined the Apostle Paul, Paul in praying for you what he prayed for them. In Ephesians 1.17 through, we prayed for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1.17 through 23. <clears throat> As I read this, I, I want you to think for a moment, just think on and Meditate on the one who possesses infinite power to bring about your good for his glory. I want you to think about this. He says, He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the, in the full knowledge of him, so that you the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, <clears throat> will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of His strength, which He worked in Christ by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things, all things, in subjection under His feet, and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is the body, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fulfills all in all. I just want you to think. I want you to take a moment and think, this is the God whom you serve. The God who has all power and all dominion. And Paul says, I want you to understand what is the surpassing greatness of His power. Here's what's amazing. Toward us. Toward us. The one who controls the wind and the waves. The one who controls the storm. Toward us who believe he works this power of the might of His strength. Why fear? Why fear? Why fear? I just want you to just think about and contemplate those amazing and grand thoughts as we return this morning to our study, the King and His glory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning Lord, I, I know that we can look at this little church 
with all its warts, with all our struggles, with all the difficulties that we face, all the problems, all the sickness, the struggle, the great difficulty many times. We can look at those things and we can be up and down. And Yet, Lord, You said, You promise in Your Word that Your power is demonstrated in us. What an amazing thought that this little church is a demonstration of Your power. Father, I pray that we would see that and we would live it. I pray this morning for Your Word that it would do its mighty work in our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. Let me read our text starting in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi came from, from the east, arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and, and the scribes of the people, he was inquiring of them, where, is, where the Christ was to be born? And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined from them the time the star appeared. And he sent, to them, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, when, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Now after hearing the king, they went their way, and behold, the star which had been, they had seen in the east was going on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child would marry his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country by another way. We'll stop right there. Now before we dive back into this chapter, I want to briefly review our study up to this point. As we start, I thought it might be helpful for, to remind you why, God, why Matthew wrote his gospel account. Matthew wrote his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As such, he compiled a meticulous and per perfect recording of pertinent events in Jesus' life and ministry, with many of which he personally witnessed. Ultimately, Matthew wants his readers to know and to understand that everything he says are actual events that occurred in Jesus' life. Now, make no mistake that the gospel according to Matthew is not a myth or a fairy tale. These things occurred exactly as he has stated. Now, we need to recognize, also recognize, that Matthew didn't haphazardly tell the stories of Jesus' life. He had a clear purpose for writing his gospel account. 
Matthew then, his purpose was to clearly present Jesus as the long-awaited divine king who came to earth, who won redemption for for his people, who suffered and died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave and now has ascended to the throne of God and will be returning in triumphant glory as the conquering king. Now starting in Matthew 1 verses 1 through 17, Matthew carefully gives us Jesus' genealogy through his father Joseph. Uh, his earthly father, Joseph, that is. And in doing so, he proves that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David, and he establishes that Jesus has a legal right to the throne of David through Joseph. Now, in Matthew 1, 18 through 25, Matthew gave the account of Jesus' birth. Now, in 1.18, he gives a simple recounting of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. He says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, what we saw in our study was that the phrase by the Holy Spirit is very significant. The child in Mary's womb was by the Holy Spirit. Now, naturally, Joseph was very troubled when he had heard the news that she was pregnant and it was not his child. So he decided to send her away secretly. But when he had made that decision, an angel appeared to him in a dream, and the angel told him the truth about the child and told him not to fear to take Mary as his wife. He also proclaimed that this child would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Now, Therefore, Joseph, on his part, believed the angel and chose to take Mary as his wife and legally adopt Jesus as his own child. Now, Matthew proclaims that not only then does Jesus have the legal right to the throne of David through Joseph, he is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. He is, in fact, fully man and fully God. He is, in fact, the true and heavenly king. And not only that, he came to save his people from their sins. Now this brings us where we left off in Matthew 2. Last week we began looking afresh at the account of the wise men arriving in Jerusalem. They were searching for the long-awaited Messiah and King. In this unique account of Gentile magi who traveled from the east, Matthew gives us three typical responses to King Jesus. Now, as we continue to study this account, I want you to ask yourself, are you responding like the unwelcome unwelcome and worshipful magi, or are you responding like the unhappy and wicked King Herod, or are you responding like the unworthy and worthless uh, leaders of the people? And now I want to give you one other response. Are you responding like the uncompromising and withstanding parents of Jesus. There's the fourth response that we're going to look at. Again, as we go through these responses, as we look at this story from each point of view, I want you to ask yourself which response you have had to King Jesus. Are you like the unwelcome and worshipful magi, or are you more like the unhappy and wicked King Herod, Or are you more like the unworthy and worthless leaders of the people? Or are you more like Joseph and Mary? I can promise you that your response is like one of these. Now I need to remind you just how much this story has been twisted in popular culture. As you know, we see 
scenes, every Christmas we see scenes of three wise men who came to give gifts to baby Jesus. Three humble men traveling from afar upon their camels as they approach the manger with a star in the background. This story, again, as we've seen, is presented year after year, but as I hope you began to see last week, there is so much more to it. In this account, Matthew presents King Jesus as the focal point of this incredible story that includes an army of kingmakers from the east who came to identify the true king and worship him. It also includes a murderously insane and wicked tyrant who would do anything to stay in power, and we're going to see more of that today. But we see also a weak and self-centered, self-righteous leadership who were willing to sell out their souls to maintain their comfort. And in the midst of all of this, we see two humble and unassuming parents. But again, at the, the focal point of this account is King Jesus. Now let's review the first typical response. Are you responding like the unwelcome and worshipful magi? Last week we looked closely at this account and we answered a series of questions to better understand the background. Look at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the setting, the setting of this was Bethlehem of Judea. It occurred sometime after Jesus' birth. Uh, most likely Jesus was just a few months old at this point, but he could have been up to two years old when you cross-reference Matthew 2.16. Therefore, it stands to reason that Jesus was, uh, in fact, very young at the time this occurred, but he was probably not an infant. This account, as I said, occurred in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, this Bethlehem was a small town just five or six miles south of Jerusalem and situated along the main ancient highway from Jerusalem to Egypt. Now, despite its small size, we know that Bethlehem enjoyed a rich biblical heritage. Jacob buried Rachel there, according to Genesis 35. Ruth and Boaz met there and were married, according to Ruth 1 and Ruth 2. Uh, David... Uh, grew up there and tended sheep around the surrounding hills, according to uh, 1 Samuel 17. By the time of Jesus' birth, it had been long been called the city of David, according to Luke chapter 2. As I said last week, we will, prophetically, or we will see that, that it is prophetically significant that Matthew identified Jesus' birthplace, the Messiah's birthplace, as Bethlehem. But we'll also see how this location plays a part in one of the responses to the arrival of King Jesus. Now look back at your text in Matthew 2.1. He says, Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And as I stated, the identity, as I stated last week, the identity of these Magi were, is shrouded by myth and tradition. During the, the Dark Ages, a legend was propagated that they were kings, that there were three of them, and they had, they had these names. They were called Caspar and uh, Balthazar and Melchior. Some even thought that they represented Noah's three sons. They, they, therefore, they, one of them is portrayed as being Ethiopian. And truly, we don't know much about, except, about them except what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew tells us they were from the east. Uh, that he tells us that, that they came to, to Jerusalem searching for the king. Now, the, the word magi is, is where we get uh, the words magic and magician. They first appear in history in the 7th century B.C. 
As we saw last week, Persia adopted this religion, their religion under Darius the Great. And the Magi had become very influential within the Medo-Persian and Babylonian empires. Now, they, as we saw again last week, they possessed a great knowledge of history and the occult. They were accomplished in mathematics and agriculture and science, and they rose in power and influence within the political structure of their day. They were involved in various occult practices, including sorcery, and were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. Now, Scripture does give us some historical insight into this group. They were major players in Babylon before and during the captivity. The book of Daniel gives us some understanding. Uh, We find in Daniel that the Magi were some of the highest-ranking officials in Babylon. Daniel's great wisdom, along with his ability to interpret dreams, probably caused the the wise men, or the Magi, to to regard him highly. According to uh, Daniel 5.11, Nebuchadnezzar even appointed Daniel the chief of the magicians, or the Magi. During their time with Daniel, some of the Magi undoubtedly or probably heard and learned, heard from Daniel and learned about the one true God. Now, again, what we need to see from this is that we must see God's sovereign hand in, in history. He placed faithful Jews like Daniel in contact with the Magi, and some of the Magi learned about the one true God, and they gained an understanding about the coming Messiah. Now, last week we saw a probable connection between the Magi and the prophecies of the wicked prophet Balaam. Now, in Numbers 24, we saw this uh, direct connection to Matthew chapter 2, Numbers 24, 17. Just listen to Matthew's words in Matthew 2, 2. He says that we, the, the, well, the Magi said, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, in Numbers 24, 20, 24, 17, Balaam says, a star shall come from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush the head of Moab. Now, there's an unmistakable connection there. But Balaam prophesied of a star that would come forth from Jacob or Israel. And the Magi came to Jerusalem to see, seeing his star in the east arising from Judah. We also then saw this connection back to Genesis 49, where Jacob prophesied that the the scepter would not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And so what we see here is a messianic prophecy in Genesis 49, and it's it's clearly a, a prophecy speaking of the coming Messiah. And these prophecies also connect back to Genesis 3, where God proclaims that the woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent. Now, last week, we saw the real-world connection between the Magi, Daniel, and the Messianic prophecies from Moses' writing. As we saw, Daniel rose up in the political structure of during the Babylonian captivity and had become respected by the Magi. He must have taught them about the Messianic prophecies in Scripture, and they had then looked for the Messiah during the centuries leading up to Jesus' birth. Most likely, the Magi then saw the glory of Jesus blazing as an extremely bright star made visible to those who were looking for it. Now, it helps us to recognize that the Hebrew and Greek words for star were also figuratively to represent any great brilliance or radiance. So in the amazing providence of God, these mysterious travelers came from the east to Jerusalem, and they were intent on one thing. 
they had to find the king to worship him. That's what they wanted to do. And when they saw this, his unmistakable sign, the star, they didn't hesitate to come quickly. So when God, God's glory shined for them to see, they immediately recognized it and were drawn to worship Jesus, the source of the light. Now look down at Matthew 2, 9-12 to see how these men responded. These men had searched for the Messiah for many centuries, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now here Matthew stacks the superlatives to emphasize the joy in their hearts at finding the one who, would, who they, they had looked for for so long. Truly, because they had seen the star, they, they rejoiced. Their hearts were full of joy and gladness. Look down at verse 11 where Matthew describes their response. He says, it says, After coming into the house, they saw the child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now notice their response. They fell down and they worshipped Jesus. Clearly, they had found the one that they had been looking for, and they responded with great joy in their hearts, and they worshipped the king. Now, much has been made about the meaning of the treasures in Matthew 2.11, and, and we don't know for certain why they brought these particular gifts. It's probably best to see these gifts as an outward expression of the worship in their hearts. John MacArthur observes that uh, the gifts were an expression of worship given out of the overflow of, of adoring and grateful hearts. And I think I agree with that. According to the text, they, were, they gave three different gifts. Now, we, we, need to, we need to look at the meaning, potential meaning of those gifts. Gold itself has been considered throughout history as the most precious of metals. It, it is a symbol of wealth and has been used historically as money as, uh, because, of its, uh, because of its material value. Uh, we even see gold being used for money today, and, and people will say, because you know, the economy is going to collapse and you need to own gold because it's, it's God's money, right? Uh, Moses described, as we've seen in our Genesis study, Moses described the Garden of Eden as a place with much gold, much fine gold. Uh, in Revelation 21, we saw this morning, the Apostle John describes the heavenly city of Jerusalem as being filled with gold. Uh, it even says uh, what the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Uh, the street was made of the city was made of pure gold, like transparent glass. So gold then was also used extensively in the construction of the temple, which points back to, to Genesis 2, uh, the gold that Moses mentions there, and it points forward to the new Jerusalem. Uh, so gold then is an important symbol in, in what we see in, in, in Scripture. Now throughout history, not only has it been used uh, as money, but it's been used as a symbol of nobility and, and royalty. And the words again of John MacArthur, Matthew, Matthew continually presents Christ as the king. I mean, we have to see that. Christ is the king. And here we see the king of the, of the Jews, the king of kings, appro appropriately being presented with royal gifts of gold. Now, frankincense was a costly incense with a beautiful and pleasant aroma. According to Leviticus 2.2, uh, frankincense was used when the grain offerings at the tabernacle um, 
according to the Song of Solomon in chapter 3, it's used in, also used in royal processions. It has been said that frankincense was the incense of deity. Myrrh, on the other hand, is a perfume mentioned many times in Scripture. The traders who took Joseph into Egypt traded myrrh. That's in Genesis 37. In Genesis 43, 11, Israel encouraged his sons, it, Jacob or Israel encouraged his sons to take myrrh as a gift to Joseph in Egypt. Now, when mixed with wine, it is, myrrh is used as an anesthetic. According to Mark 15.23, Jesus referred this, uh, refused, that is, this mixture while he was on the cross. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he wouldn't take it. In John 19.39, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes to wrap Jesus' body after taking him down from the cross. Now, it has been said that then the Magi brought gold for Jesus' royalty. They brought frankincense for his deity, and they brought myrrh for his humanity. But in any case, no matter what these gifts meant, in any case, the Magi brought their gifts as heartfelt worship to King Jesus. They had been looking for him for seven centuries. They had been looking for this true king, the Messiah, and they had found him, and they worshipped with joy. Look at Matthew 2.12. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country by another way. Now this is that the idea of, of being unwelcome. They were unwelcome there. They were unwelcome there by, the, by King Herod, but they were also unwelcome by the people. We'll see that as we continue this in this account. These, these unwelcome yet worshipful men left the scene having recognized Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, as we take our leave of these men for the moment, I ask you, how have you responded to King Jesus? Are you like the Magi? Have you been looking expectantly for Him? Do you fall down and worship to the true King? Or are you more like our next character, the unhappy, unhinged, and very wicked King Herod? So let's answer the question, who was Herod the King? Look back at your text in Matthew 2.1. Matthew says that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. Now, a few weeks ago, we saw that, in, that Israel during this time was a peculiar culture because of the occupation of the Romans and the mindset of the Jews. We need to learn a little bit more about the political structure in Israel to interpret Matthew's account of the Magi here in chapter 2. We need to know that Herod himself was put in power by the Romans. Now, in this text, we see that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. Now, we know from history that this particular Herod was born in 73 B.C. He was the son of the Idumean Antipater, who had been appointed governor of Judea by Julius Caesar. The Roman Senate, that is, appointed Herod the king of Judea in 40 B.C. Now, what we have to understand is that they appointed him in Rome, and after his appointment in Rome, he returned to Judea and he was accompanied by Roman forces to chase out his enemies and to establish his rule or 
ultimately Roman rule over the region. And then by 37 BC, three years later, he had crushed all local opposition to his sovereignty. Now, again, he did this using Roman force. Now, King Herod was an incredibly shrewd man. He was a crafty man, uh, which made him fabulously wealthy and, and politically gifted. He, remember, we need to remember this as we keep going. It definitely helps us understand his actions because he was so shrewd and he was so politically gifted. Now, because the, of the Romans uh, and what they had done, he was intensely loyal to the Romans because the Romans had placed him in power. Now, uh, having said that, uh, the only one that he's actually uh, uh, loyal to is himself. But we're going to see that even more as we go on. Now, it's helpful to, to, to understand that he was an excellent administrator. He was uh, streetwise, and he was clever, and he, he was so clever that he was able to remain in the good graces of successive Roman emperors. I mean, so he outlasted everyone in many, in, in many ways. Now, he became known as Herod the Great because he, he, of his incredible building projects. As he aged and had had these amazing successes, the, the people began to, to venerate him as Herod the Great. He was responsible for several, or several incredible building projects, including uh, the temple in Jerusalem. He, had, he possessed um, several amazing fortresses, including the one at Masada. You can still go visit these fortresses today. You can also see the temple in Jerusalem, at least what's left of it, uh, after the Romans got done with it in AD 70. He built the, the splendid port. You can go there today in Caesarea, and he encouraged trade in the, in the country. Now, these, these places, when they were new, when they were built, they, they were admi admired by, even by his enemies. Uh, you can still, again, visit them today and get a, a glimpse of their former uh, glory. Now, as I said, Herod, Herod the Great was a shrewd man. He was able to build a prosperous economy to raise money through taxes, and, and this financed his many indulgences. I mean, you can't imagine the wealth that this man had. More than anything, though, Herod loved being in power. He loved being in power. Oh, how he loved being in power. And let me tell you something. This man would do almost, well, I shouldn't say almost, absolutely anything to stay on top. If there were ever a prototype arch enemy on this earth, it was Herod. He was Satan's pawn. Satan's pawn. Now, Herod was a paranoid murderer who wouldn't let anyone stand in his way. At the time of Jesus' birth, Herod was very close to the end of his life. He was suffering from grave illnesses which actually helped drive him insane. As time went on, he became more and more paranoid, even of his closest family and friends. If you, if you think your family life is tough or rough, you just listen to the, his family history. You see, Herod was given to fiery fits of rage. He even killed his own wife, who was of Jewish descent. Uh, he murdered her in a fit of jealousy. He murdered at least two, and some historians say probably three of his sons because he thought that they were usurping his power. It has been said that his brother escaped death only by dying first. I mean, this is how bad this man was. 
When, when Herod finally died, two other sons had some claim to the throne, but, but they didn't. Augustus uh, Caesar at the time finally settled the matter between the two by splitting the inheritance between them and a third one, and he didn't allow the title of king to any of them because they were so bad. I mean, it's, if you look up dysfunctional family in the dictionary, you're going to find a picture of King Herod and, and his family right beside my picture. But as you can tell, Herod was quite the family guy. I mean, he was quite the guy all around. Now, as amazing as it might sound, there were much greater examples of his paranoia and insane cruelty. As he stood at death's door, he ordered the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem arrested and imprisoned. He did this because he knew that no one would mourn his death. So to ensure that there would be mourning in Jerusalem at his death, he gave orders for those citizens to be executed the moment he died. That's a nice guy. That's a real nice guy. He was known as Herod the Great for his amazing public works programs, his shrewd uh, diplomacy with the Romans, his wealth and his administrative genius but personally Herod was paranoid was a paranoid insane little man who feared anyone who threatened his position that's who he was he was willing to stop at nothing to protect his status and power and here's the rub for Herod his only claim to be king of the Jews was by force through the power of the Romans that was it you see he had cozied up to them to rise to his position. He was, Herod was an Edomite and had no claim to, the, to be the king of the Jews. Therefore, he hated even the suggestion that there may be a rival to the throne. Any rival had to be vanquished. That's what happened to his sons. No matter, no matter whether they were from the inside or the outside, whether they were young or old, friend, family, or foe, Herod would not stand for any challengers to his rule. So the question is, why then, when the Magi came rolling into town, why was Herod and all Jerusalem troubled? Well, this, high, this event occurred toward the end of his reign when he was right at the height of his insanity. As we have seen, the Magi were from the east, from Parth Parthia, and when Herod came to power uh, in 40 B.C., with the help of the Romans, he actually drove the Parthians out of Palestine, which solidified his grip to the throne. Therefore, when the Magi suddenly appeared in Jerusalem, you can only imagine what Herod would have thought. I mean, here's these, this enemy coming into town. So Matthew says that he was troubled. He was troubled. Now, the word translated troubled has the idea of being stirred up, disturbed, unsettled thrown into confusion. In this case, it has the idea of also being frightened or even terrified. Now, as, as we have seen, Herod was an incredibly paranoid and insane dude. I mean, this man was uh, the definition of insanity. So, so he was troubled when his enemies from the east came rolling into town. Now, he didn't know at the time, the text doesn't tell us completely, but it, he wouldn't have known if their coming indicated the potential for another conquest, or perhaps they came to crown a new king to rule Judea for the, for the Parthians. I mean, he didn't know. Now, considering his paranoid nature, he couldn't have trusted that the Magi were there for purely religious purposes. In any case, 
Herod clearly saw this as a threat to his power. Now Matthew tells us also that Jerusalem was troubled as well. It, it's possible that, it's very possible they were concerned that there would be another conquest, that there'd be fighting, and that they would be caught in the middle of it all. Now, despite Herod's obvious insanity, things were actually pretty stable under his rule as long as you didn't get on his bad side. I mean, as long as you were on his good side, uh, things were pretty stable. I mean, the, the, the economy was pretty good. Does that sound familiar to you? So to most of the citizenry, the, the Magi re- represented po- the possibility of major trouble rolling into town. Therefore, they must have been fearful for their future lives and livelihood. Yet, knowing Herod's maniacal nature and his penchant for bloodshed, they were probably more frightened by Herod's potential reaction to this threat than they were anything. Now, again, Herod had d- demonstrated he would kill indiscriminately. So even associating with these people coming into town uh, from the enemy uh, could have could have been a problem for anybody. He, he would, if he suspected anyone of harming him or threatening his position, he would stop at nothing to destroy them or anyone associated with them. So that, just think about that in terms of Jesus then. So why did he respond wickedly to Jesus' arrival? Well, to make matters worse, <coughs> the, the Magi showed up searching for the one born king of the Jews. Well, guess what? Guess who was the king of the Jews? Herod the Great was the king of the Jews, or at least that's what he considered himself. He considered himself that. After all, he was Herod the Great. So when these men showed up looking for the true king, his power was threatened. But not by the Magi. Not by the Magi. By King Jesus. As we've seen, King Herod was not only wicked, he was shrewd. Amazingly, he identified that the true threat to his power was not the Magi. So he used them for his own wicked purposes. Look at Matthew 2.7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined from them the time the star had appeared, or appeared, the time the star had appeared. So on the sly, Herod pumped the Magi for information. I mean, he, he used what was potentially his enemy to find out more information. Uh, like I said, like I told you, this man is absolutely shrewd and calculating. He didn't think twice about using an enemy for his own wicked gain. Look at back at verse 8. And he, said, and he sent them to, to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. See, Herod flatly lied to him. He flat out lied to the Magi, telling them that, they had, that he had pious purposes. He was going to go worship them or worship him. Yet, he certainly had ulterior motives. But this, this makes complete sense when we consider his twisted personality. And so in Matthew 2, 9, after hearing that the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star which had been in the east that was going on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Then skipping down to Matthew 2, 16, we see uh, wicked Herod doing what wicked men do. In this case, he even exceeded his own wicked standard of, of, or his own standard of wickedness. Look at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, so the Magi, they skipped town. They said, we're out of here. We're not going to deal with this, this crazy man. 
he became very enraged. And again, he's, he's given to fits of anger, and he, and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, and according to the time, according to the time which he had carefully determined from the Magi. So we see that, that Herod was this shrewd man, and he was willing to do stop at nothing to, to destroy anybody who would, who would be over him, who would take his power and his position, and he would not stop at nothing even to kill all the babies. So he determined the time frame for when Jesus had been born and he used it to murder all the completely innocent male children from two and under in and around Bethlehem. Now we have to, under, we have to recognize the satanic force behind his wicked action. Truly this is an unspeakably wicked act by, a, by this make-believe usurper. All of this reminds me of the wickedness we see in our world today, truly we have wicked rulers just like Herod. Thankfully, they're more restrained, but believe me, the, the same wickedness lurks in their hearts. But we must, must not be troubled. God is sovereign. Just listen to the words of Steve Lawson. Some Christians live in such fear, they act as if they believe in the sovereignty of Satan rather than the sovereignty of God, end quote. I mean, this, all of this, you see the wickedness of this man. I mean, satanic wickedness, empowered by Satan. And you see Jesus, innocent baby Jesus, who has, has no protection in this world. And yet, in the sovereignty of God, Nothing, nothing can stop what God's plan was. As, I, as you think about this, I want to remind you of my main question. What is your response to King Jesus? Do you respond to him like the unwelcome and worship of Magi, or are you more like the unhappy, unhinged, insane, wicked, insanely wicked King Herod? Now, before you protest and challenge me, yeah, I'm not, I'm not wicked like that. I'm not like that dude. I, he's, that guy's un, he's unhinged. How can I ever be as wicked as that man? I want you to think about a couple of things. First, Herod's greatest sin was the denial of the true king. That was his greatest sin. Yes, he slaughtered his wife and some of his children. Yes, he was responsible for the death of thousands of his subjects, including the innocent male children around Bethlehem. Yet his rejection of Jesus, the Messiah, was in fact his greatest sin. You see, the Magi responded to King Jesus with great joy and fell to the ground to worship him. While Herod refused to bow his knee and worship to King Jesus. The question is, have you rejected King Jesus? I'm reminded of Philippians 2.9. The, the Apostle Paul proclaims, 
God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee, every knee, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue, let me repeat that, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friend, If you had not bowed your knee to King Jesus, you will. And believe me, if you don't bow your knee today, now, in this life, you will be judged just like King Herod. You may not have committed Herod's atrocities, but you've committed the worst atrocity imaginable. You have denied Jesus Christ as a sovereign king. In the words of Thomas Brooks, the sovereignty of God is that golden scepter in His hand by which He will make all bow. Either by His word or by His works. By His mercies or by His judgments. End quote. Let me give you one other thing to consider as we, as we think about King Herod and, and his response. You see, there was a sense that Herod was a religious man. He didn't, uh, he didn't abolish the Jewish priesthood under his leadership. If you, if you see the temple, uh, under the, the Herod's temple, if you see depictions of it, it was truly a marvel. Even today, you see evidences of the grandeur of, of Herod's temple at the base of the Temple Mount. If you go there, if you go under it, it there you see these massive stones from Herod's day. I mean, you can get some uh, just glimpse of the greatness of this temple. He even established a, a good relationship with the Jewish religious establishment. Now, I, I say good, and I don't mean that, that it was good, but what I mean is, is that they, well, let's say it this way. He destroyed anyone who opposed him, and the priests were not above his wrath, so by the end of his reign, the priesthood had become a temporary office held at his pleasure. But, I mean, he still had them. I mean, they were still there. But for now, I want, I want you to warn you I want to warn you that simply being religious does not save you. Make sure you understand it. Simply being religious does not save you. You can know doctrine. You can attend church every week. You can give to the cause of Christ. You can be a churchgoer for decades. You can serve Him in in amazing ways from a worldly point of view. Your church building could be large and ornate, or it could be small and plain. You can do a lot of religious stuff and yet not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You may even proclaim God's sovereignty over this world and your life, yet live as a practical atheist. I mean, you can do these things. In the words of R.C. Sproul, this is scary. Most Christians salute the sovereignty of God but believe in the sovereignty of man. End quote. Beloved, you don't have to, to be outwardly wicked like King Herod to commit the same blasphemies against the Lord. If you reject Jesus and refuse to bow to Him now, the same ultimate fate awaits you. You see, 
King Herod had everything this world has to offer. He had fame, he had power, he had influence, he had wealth. Yet King Herod was unhappy, unstable, and unhinged. He was a wicked man because he didn't want to give up those things. I ask you, evaluate yourself today. In your heart of hearts, where do you stand? Are you more like the Magi? They were outsiders. They were not part of the religious establishment, yet they worshipped the true king. Are you more like King Herod? Are you bent on loving this world and will do what it takes to keep your piece of the pie? You may ask why I question you this way, why I address you in this way. After all, this is the church, right? Beloved, I don't want your blood on my hands. I trust that most of you have truly believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Yet I don't want to take that for granted. I don't want to take it for granted. If you know Him, you can be like the Magi. You can rejoice with great joy. You can celebrate the, the, the mercy He's shown toward you and, 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 and that He saved you by His grace. But if you don't know Him, I pray that you will turn to Him in great haste. Come to Him now. Bow your knee in worship. You will find rest for your weary and unhappy soul. The next time we're going to see the the unworthy and worthless Jewish leadership, we're going to see and look at the uncompromising and withstanding Joseph and Mary. So I hope you'll come back next week to see that or hear that. If any... If the Lord, if the Holy Spirit has laid anything on your heart, just ask that you come and see me or Keith or just one of the men so we can talk to you, a mature Christian, to answer your questions. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for a recurring theme through this entire morning has been your sovereignty. You are sovereign over all things. Whether it be storms, life's difficulties, illness. As a brother Spurgeon said, your sovereignty is the pillow upon which we lay our head. We can sleep well at night knowing that you are sovereign over this world. And we see this account of the Magi and King Herod and the people. And we see this wicked and unhinged man who is bent on killing, destroying any hint of someone taking away his power. And in the midst of this, we see Joseph and Mary, and we see the Lord Jesus, 
being born where we can only understand that story in, as we understand your sovereignty. That you have had every part of that, every facet of that account, every minute detail was orchestrated by you. Whether it be the, the Magi looking for the Lord Jesus for many centuries or whether it be King Herod and his wickedness and desire to remain in power and the willingness to, to destroy anyone who came, got in his way. Father, you were sovereign over all that. And as we turn the corner this morning to observe the Lord's table, Lord, I pray that we would consider that You were sovereign over sending Your Son to live the perfect life. That every minute detail of His life was orchestrated perfectly such that He would go to the cross. That He would fulfill all righteousness. That He would go to the cross not for His sins, but for our sins. That He would take upon Himself our sins that He would suffer Your wrath on the cross so that we would not have to. So that if we would only believe and have faith in the finished work, that we wouldn't have to suffer Your wrath and that we would have life eternal. Lord, we believe that You went to the cross, that You died for our sins, that You were laid in the tomb, that You were raised on the third day, and that You have ascended to the right hand of the Father. Father, it is that that we celebrate this morning. We celebrate and we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Father, we pray that You'd be glorified in the preaching of this sermon in the, and in our observance of the Lord's table. In Christ's name, Amen.